Well, good morning. Let me invite you to go to Matthew 28 again this morning, Matthew chapter 28, and uh, let us uh, spend some time in, in that passage again this morning. You know, when I was, uh, I think it was a senior in college, uh, one, of, one of the men that actually was uh, sort of a really important mentor while I was in college is Dr. Mark Minnick, I think some of you may be familiar with. And uh, when my junior year, he had uh, sort of promoted this class that was taught in my senior year called Expository Preaching, which was taught by his mentor. And he had talked about how great the class was and all of that. So I, I made sure I worked out my schedule to take that class. And one of the assignments for the class was you, you essentially were assigned a, a book of the New Testament letter. I actually had the book of Ephesians. And you were supposed to, as the major project for the semester, essentially study the book and do outline the book, word studies, write sermons from it. And basically, that's all we were told. And because I had heard about this from Mark Minnick, and, and when he had described it, he had described it as this like really you know, significant project. So it was one of those very rare times in my academic career uh, where I, uh, I just sort of went after it because I, you know, I had this preconceived notion and went through the whole semester, got to the day where to turn them in. And I think I had, I mean, I had a full notebook. And I'm looking around at my classmates, and they're handing in like three to five pages of stuff. And I'm thinking, these guys are going to get torched. I mean, they're going to get killed. Get the project back, and, and I think this is the only time I've ever had the prof said, more than you needed to do, but very good work. And I thought to myself, now is not a good time to tell me that that was more than what I needed to do. Right? The, the problem for me was I had uh, an assignment that I had no clear idea what exactly would fulfill that assignment. Have you ever been in an academic or a job circumstance or a honeydew list where you know you're supposed to get something done, but you really don't know what the person who gave you the assignment expects you to do? It's, it's, it's a very frustrating thing. Thankfully, you and I are not in that position about what the mission of Jesus Christ is. We actually have not been left to figure it all out on our own. We have not been just set loose. Jesus left 2,000 years ago and said, hey, make yourselves busy with doing something. He actually inscripturated the instructions for us. He told us what he wants us to do until he comes back. And, and what we have to recognize is the blessing of that. Because the mission of Jesus Christ was not left up to our ingenuity and creativity. It wasn't actually designed to be a grand entrepreneurial invention, uh, adventure in which we freewheel what we're going to do on behalf of Jesus. It actually is to be governed by his word so that we are faithful because we're stewards. And you know what's required of stewards? That we be found trustworthy, that we do what Jesus said to do. And so... What I want to do again this morning is simply remind us, I think, of uh, the simplicity and clarity of Jesus' instructions to us. Last night, we tackled uh, the why question of, of Kipling's working men, right? Why do we do the Great Commission? Why do we go out to the nations for the sake of his name? And it's because verse 18 tells us, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth been given to him. And so we go. We have, uh, we have not just obligation, we have motivation, and we have permission. We, we have been commanded, and since Jesus is our Lord, we go. Because he is the Lord, we want to declare that to everybody because we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord what Paul said. And we know that salvation, it comes 
when people confess with the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's, that's what we're going out to do, is to declare that, that he is both Lord and Christ. He's the only one in whom salvation is found. And we can go anywhere because he is Lord of all. There is no political power or spiritual power that can oppose us successfully, can restrict our access Uh, prevent us from fulfilling the mission of Jesus Christ, and in fact, even the most difficult of obstacles, depravity, is not sufficient to keep Jesus from calling out a people. He has authority to give eternal life. And so we could stand in the midst of a spiritual graveyard and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust him to give life. He raises the spiritually dead. And so we go out with confidence because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's commissioned us to do. Now, if you would, look at verses 19 and 20. Again, familiar text, but let's not be blinded to the wonderful truths that are here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think you're probably familiar with the fact that there is one central command in this text. And so if we're just going to sort of do an overview of the content and try and understand it, what we'd have to zero in on is that phrase, make disciples, and that's the command that Jesus gives. That's, that's really what we're commanded to do. We are to make disciples of all the nations. And so we're going to spend some time uh, looking at what that means in a moment because that's the answer to the what question. When we talk about missions, well, what is it? Well, there's, there's the command that really needs to drive us. That's the activity that we're engaged in. The first part of the verse says, go therefore... And, and if, without trying to get too technical about it, but if you were actually to try to understand it grammatically, right, if you had the command, make disciples as the central focus of it, before it is the word go, and, and if you were going to try and find out what that's modifying, it's actually the command. That is going, make disciples. And probably the best way to understand what that word is doing is it's describing the circumstances within which we are obeying the command. And so Jesus is is talking to his disciples, and clearly the word all nations indicates this, that the mission that he's giving to them is one that will necessitate their spreading out to the nations. This text uh, really sort of includes it in, in a very summarized way. But for instance, the, the commission in the Gospel of Luke is more specific. He says there that repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be preached in my name, beginning at Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. Or like Acts 1.8, we, we're very familiar with that passage And it says, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remote parts of the earth. So so the go, therefore, is, is actually inside of that is our understanding of these other passages that Jesus is telling the disciples that their ministry of bearing witness to him as the Lord is to radiate out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Right, they're to, to go, that, and, and as they go about that task, they are to make disciples. And so there is a sense in which in th- these kinds of grammatical relationships, uh, it's not wrong for most of our translations to translate go as a command, because it does pick up that kind of command imperatival force, right? We we must go in order to do what Jesus has told us to do. And we'll circle back to that again. Then if you look at the rest of the verses, 19 and 20, it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I like the way there's a commentator, D.A. Carson, I think the way he's described these other two words, so you've got make disciples before it, go, and then after it, baptizing and teaching, and those two words are actually words that are modifying make disciples in some way. And the word that he uses is the word characteristics. That is, the making of disciples will include the characteristics of baptizing and teaching. He draws a parallel uh, from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, lend expecting nothing in return. And it's the exact same kind of grammatical relationship And so he's not technically saying how you're lending. He's saying this is the characteristic of your lending. You're lending without expecting anything in return. And so what he's saying here is you're not technically making the disciple by baptizing them. But if you're making disciples, they will be being baptized and they will be being taught to observe what Jesus commanded. So you can't really be fulfilling the commission of Jesus Christ without these accompanying characteristics of baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them, notice verse 20, to observe all that I have commanded you. And and I think it's worthy of us thinking about that for a moment because sometimes you and I hear the word teach and we think notebooks and information. Right? Jesus doesn't say... So tell them everything that I commanded you. Jesus says, teach them to observe everything that I commanded. That is, you're supposed to teach them to do what I commanded. That it's not just a matter of filling up a discipleship notebook with content It actually is the transformation of their lives into conformity and obedience to Jesus' commands. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And so it's important, I think, to recognize that that characteristic of the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. And as I said last night, and we'll say much more fully tomorrow morning, uh, I believe that those those two characteristics necessarily imply the existence of local assemblies. And we'll see that in the book of Acts. Immediately, as many as received his word, were baptized and added to them. Because baptism is the incorporation of them into the assembly of God's people, their public recognition that they have faith in Jesus Christ and have become his follower and when you trace out the, the immediate uh, establishment of the church in Acts 2, it was verse 41, as many as received his word, were baptized and added to them, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. That's what this text was. And if you go to Ephesians 4, where is the center of teaching among God's people. It's within the body, Ephesians 4. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 says that the local assembly is the pillar and support of the truth. So, so what Jesus here is, is saying on the front end of this, that what you're going to be doing is making disciples, uh, congregating them through identification with me through baptism, and then instructing them to follow me inside of things like this, a local assembly that that is carrying out the work of Jesus Christ. So our authority is verse 18, the activity is verses 19 and 20, the arena in which we do all of this is all nations, and then verse 20, the assurance we have is that Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age, which I think is... Again, not something we should glide past. I mean, this is a really small window of people. But there are people who will say that the Great Commission was actually just something for the apostles. And they went out and they did it 
And, and now the, the Great Commission really isn't something that we're engaged in. We're just supposed to have local church life and, and worship Jesus together. Uh, that was something that was, was uh, early church. And, and since it went, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, most parts of the earth. And Paul says in Colossians 1, the gospel has been preached under all heaven. Then there's really no compelling thing for us. But here Jesus says, that this task will enjoy his presence until the end of the age, right? It's not just something that would be for the apostles. This is something actually built into it, even if you think about the inherent logic of it, right? That you're to make disciples, have them identify with Christ through baptism, instruct them in how to obey Jesus would necessarily mean one of the things that you're teaching them to observe is go make disciples of all the nations, right? I mean, there's something inherently reproducing in the mission here that would hand from one generation to the next generation to the next generation all the way down until the end of the age. And you and I, even as J.D. pointed out this morning, we're included in that the Gentiles who can glorify God for his mercy, right? You and I are recipients of of baton pass after baton pass from generation to generation who were obeying what Jesus said. What a horrific thing it would be if we were the generation that decided to just hang on the baton. We've got the gospel, we're all good. Instead of saying, no, there are still people and places that need to hear the name of Jesus and we must go and make disciples of all nations. So now let's circle back. That's sort of the first pass overview of it. Let's zero in for a moment on this command, make disciples, make disciples. Uh, because I think, again, this is a place where uh, sometimes uh, we, we might actually have a little bit of a distorted view of this because, uh, and, and I don't wanna, I, I wanna walk through this carefully, right? Uh, you know, think like this, we're driving down the road and probably a bunch of times this morning, there's going to be a possibility of an exit ramp for you to go off and think about something I said, and we're going to keep on driving, right? So we're not really getting off any exit ramps. So please stay on the road with me. I'm going to do my best to keep you yeah, on it. But here's, here's one of those places, because I'm going to, I'm going to try to highlight this with, against something different, is that normally we tend to talk about missions and the Great Commission as evangelism or as preaching the gospel. And both of those things are absolutely central to what we're doing, but they don't quite go far enough. Right? Because Jesus did not command here, just preach the gospel to all the nations. He said something more than that. I mean, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Let's suppose, and, and honestly, this is something that it's amazing. It's not actually like completely outside the realm of our imagination now. Let's suppose we could set up a global simulcast in which one person was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and simultaneously it was being broadcast into every language on the planet that every tongue could hear the gospel message. And we poured all our energy into it and we did that and there was this clear gospel presentation that immediately simulcasted into every nation, to every people group, in every language. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would not fulfill this passage. Because Jesus didn't say, just preach the gospel to every people group. He said, make disciples baptizing them, 
teaching them. Let me, let me illustrate it a different way. Uh, my wife and I, uh, thankfully, just had our 33rd wedding anniversary last Friday. So we got married on February 16th, 1985. And let's say you bumped, to me, bumped into me on February 28th, 1985, and you said, hey, Dave, I heard you got married. And I said, yep, I am fulfilling all of God's will about being a husband. You'd look at me and go, like, are you an idiot? And, and you'd say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I got married. You'd say, hang on here. Getting married and fulfilling all of God's will about being a husband are not the exact same thing. Now, I could not fulfill God's will about being a husband until I was married, but getting married didn't complete that. And so when you hear me say that it's not just evangelism, it's not just preaching the gospel, do not hear me saying that it's not evangelism, it's not preaching the gospel. Hear me saying that that is essential to fulfilling this great commission, but it is not extensive with fulfilling it. That the mission Jesus entrusted to us goes well past just proclaiming the good news. It goes well past even just evangelizing somebody. It even goes past just seeing that person make a profession of faith. He's talking about something larger than that. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. He's talking about the kind of genuine gospel conversion that happens when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And in fact, that shouldn't really surprise us because that's really what the word means here to make disciples. It is to make students or followers or learners of Jesus. Earlier in this same book of Matthew, Jesus has one of the most familiar passages, I think, that the Christians know, right? All you who are weary and heavy laden, right? Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The English translation, learn of me, is from the same word family that this word, make disciples, is. Right? What he's saying is, make someone, come, take my yoke upon you and become my student, become my follower, become my disciple. In fact, in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, he uses the analogy, he says, right, a Uh, A student is not above his teacher, right? And he uses the same context, a disciple and a master. When we're calling people to become disciples of Jesus Christ, we're making disciples. We're actually calling them to become followers of Jesus Christ through faith in his person and work, right? The, the, the stuff we talked about last night, that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. We're, we're announcing to them that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He is, when if you put it in the language of 1 Thessalonians 1, He is the center of our message, the good news about what God does for sinners through his son. And when we preach that message, here's what happens. Like the Thessalonians, Paul says about them, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the spirit and with full assurance. And then he keeps talking about that. And then he says this, for for they themselves report of you how you turned from dead idols 
to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I mean, how did Paul know that the Thessalonians were the real deal? Because the power of the gospel had changed them. They had been pagan idolaters and they turned from it to worship, to serve the living and true God and they actually now began to wait for the sun to come back to rescue them from the wrath to come. Their hope and trust was now that Jesus was their only hope the one who had been appointed to judge the living and the dead was actually the one who would rescue them in the day of judgment. That's what their faith was. And that's actually what Jesus is calling us to do. And, and I don't hesitate to say that because you remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians? You became an example. Right? You you were a model of exactly what's supposed to happen. And such a model that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says to them, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified, and here comes the key, just as it did with you. So in essence, Paul's saying, What happened with you is exactly what you should be praying for. And when that happens, it's the word of the Lord spreading rapidly, advancing effectively and being glorified. Because, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, they received it as it was indeed the word of the Lord and not the word of men. So that's what Jesus is saying we do. We call people to become followers of Jesus Christ through faith in his person and work. In reality, and, and, and I know at times this can get all, you know, we can get all chopped up in debates about stuff with technical titles, and, and so we draw up lines and, and we have these theological battles, and sometimes right in the midst of it, we just lose. <laughs> What, what actually Jesus was telling us to do, right? And, 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 and it was that we are confronting humanity in their idolatry, right? When, when they knew God, they did not glorify him God, as God, neither were thankful, and we are coming to them and saying, the God who made you, has a right to rule over you against whom you've sinned and therefore are condemned justly. That that God has moved to provide a way of redemption and salvation for you in that he himself, in his son, took to himself our nature so that he could live righteously die sacrificially on behalf of sinners, rise from the dead victoriously, and he is exalted in heaven and will return triumphantly. And you need to look to him. You need to trust in him. And friend, you you can't do that if you separate the gift of salvation from the Savior. And, And sadly, a lot of what we've done is, is done that. You know, if I, if I could just as analogy, uh, well, let me, let me change that, all right? Sorry, I didn't mean to drop that that hard, all right? Let's say this is eternal life. What, what we, have, we have perpetuated, uh, especially in the last 150 years, is a view of the task that Jesus has given to us is to go around and hand out eternal life tickets. You know, we, 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 we show up to somebody and we say, hey, do all everything I just said, right? God, man, sin, Christ, salvation, and say, so hey, you don't want to go to hell, do you? 
No, no, I don't want, I mean, I have not yet, I, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there, but I have never yet in my life had anybody tell me they want to go to hell. Right, so I say to them, hey, you don't want to go to hell, you'd like to go to heaven, right? Yep, okay, so here's what, here's what you need to do. Say these words. Repeat them. All right, good. Jesus just gave you your eternal life ticket. You sort of tuck that in, Someday you get to the pearly gates, pull it out, and say, why should I let you in heaven? Well, because when I was 13, I prayed a prayer. I made a decision, and now God's obligated to save me. As if the gift of eternal life can be received, and, I'm, and this is just an illustration, apart from the Son, rather than actually the gift of eternal life being wrapped up in our reception of the Son. Right? Remember what Jesus, uh, the Gospel of John says? As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God, even to those who believed in his name. The idea that coming to Jesus is merely accepting a gift from Jesus rather than receiving Christ rather than trusting in him, acknowledging that he alone is the Savior, and so your whole heart has turned to look to the Son and wait for him to rescue you from the wrath to come, has produced a kind of Christianity which is a mile wide and an inch deep, and particularly all across the world. Right, so again, stick with me here. If we conceive of the mission of Jesus Christ as merely preaching the gospel, and, and I'm going to put it in air quotes because I don't actually think this is genuinely evangelizing, just evangelizing people and then taking off to the next group. That's how you can explain things like, and I'm just going to pick a part of the world, being in, say, East Africa, Hopping, hopping into your four-wheel drive vehicle, cutting out across the bush roads and going into a city, gathering the crowd, preaching a 35, 40-minute message that basically says, God, man, Christ, sin, faith. How many of you would like to receive Jesus as your Savior? All right, pray this prayer. Hop back in your four-wheeler, drive back to your city, type up your prayer letter and say, Preach in such and such a village, 50 people got saved today. Next day, go get in the next village. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. And so, God may have graciously drawn some of those folks to himself. That's not my point. My point is this. Do you think that is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 28? I mean, if we're honest, we have to say, no, it's not. Because Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. He didn't just say, run and set up preaching points and just sort of do a gospel blast and then run off to the next place and count as many decisions as you can because Jesus really wasn't telling the disciples to go get decisions. He was telling them to go make disciples. Call people to a kind of trust in Jesus Christ that turn from dead idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven who rescues us from the wrath to come. And we need to recognize that that's the mission that Jesus entrusted to us. And, and that means it's a, it's a deep and patient, faithful work of, of teaching the word of God and, and discipling and shaping and molding and helping people grow into conformity to Christ because not all professions of faith actually are, in fact, genuine conversions. And we see that in the New Testament, right? So why would we set up mission strategies to actually multiply 
the potential of false professions rather than pursue the strategy that Jesus entrusted to his disciples and the apostle Paul believed enough in that he was constantly writing to these converts and sending his co-workers to these converts and saying things like to the Galatians, I'm in labor again with you so that Christ might be formed in you. Or even saying to the Philippians, with whom he had a great relationship, that he wanted them to keep pressing on so that his ministry would not prove to be vain or empty. Because genuine faith is, is an attachment to Jesus Christ. It's, it's recognizing that he is who he is. And, and practically speaking, it is a transfer of our allegiance from the things that we previously worshipped as God to the recognition that Jesus is our Lord and our God. And if you believe that about Jesus, you don't, you don't just say, hey, I want heaven, but I'm not really interested in you, Jesus. You become a follower of Christ. And so Jesus commissions us to a task that, that is, is calling for disciples, not decisions, that, that produces genuine transformation, not just a transaction. Because remember what Paul says to the Corinthians? If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, if at some point later on in your Christian life, then you become a new creation and old things pass away. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. In fact, that's exactly what, what the, the whole process that's taking place at the new birth is, Right? I mean, we know this, we, we quote it, but at times I don't think we think about the ramifications of it. I mean, two of the most favorite verses of believers, properly so, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you remember what verse 10 says? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Right? That, that, that if we have come to Christ, it is not by our works, it's by his. We're his workmanship, and that workmanship is so profound and powerful, it can be described as creation, created in Christ. And that's why chapter 4, when he talks about the difference between the Gentiles who do not know God, 17 through 19, verse 20 says, but you did not so learn Christ. And you know that word, learn? Just like take my yoke upon you and learn of me and make disciples. You did not so become a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he comes to 22 and 24, right? You've put off the old man which is being corrupted according to deceitful loss and being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Then verse 24, put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created according to righteousness and holiness of the truth. If you have genuinely come to Jesus Christ, you are the result of his creative grace and it produces new life. And the evidences of those life, that new life are to be cultivated and instructed and formed as you follow Jesus Christ. That's what we know the church is supposed to do, right? Why do we think that's not what the mission is supposed to do? Do we think the rest of the people on the planet can't really grow to spiritual maturity like we can. That's why we have Bible teaching and discipleship. But, but really, they're just like barely out of hell, so we just need to sort of just give them the gospel and then run to the next group. No, Jesus wants the same thing to happen on all the fields of the world that has happened right here in Colonial Baptist Church. 
that, that the power of the gospel would produce assemblies of people who are individually being formed into Christ's likeness, and the assembly itself is growing up into him who is our head, being conformed to the full measure and stature of Christ. That's God's will for us to happen all over the planet. And so we need to embrace that mission and have our minds clear about what that mission is so that when we're thinking about missions and missionaries, we are thinking about it in light of the command of Jesus Christ to make disciples. Because, and, and this, is, this could, become, uh, could sound a little harsh, but if you have someone claiming to be a missionary who is not about the task of making disciples, then they're not actually a Great Commission missionary. Because Jesus told us what we're supposed to do. And commission is where we get the idea of mission. And a missionary is somebody who's been sent out to do the mission. So if Jesus commissioned us to do his mission, then the people who go out to do that mission, it would seem pretty obvious they should be doing his mission not doing things that we just come up with, right? The mission is to make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. That's what Jesus commissioned us to do. And I think that means it's very important to have us fill in, I think, if I could put it this way, from our knowledge of the other commission text in the book of Acts, exactly how it is that we make disciples. And, and I would say this simply this way, that the means of discipleship is gospel proclamation. For instance, Mark 16 says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I already quoted Luke 24, that, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name. In John chapter 15, he says, you shall testify of me. In John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, I'm praying not only for them only, but for those who will believe on me through their word. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you shall go and be witnesses for me. I mean, so it's unmistakable that what Jesus was telling his disciples to do was to go and proclaim the good news. That that is the mission. In fact, Paul gives us a theological commentary on that in Romans chapter 10, doesn't he? He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how can they call on someone in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe on someone in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And how can they have a preach if someone's not sent? He, he, he sets up a chain of logic between the conversion of people calling on the name of the Lord and the hearing and pre believing, hearing, preaching, and being sent. I mean, it's, it's gospel proclamation. It is, in fact, what is the commission that Jesus gave us, and the book of Acts confirms that to us, right? You're, I'm sure you're familiar with the book of Acts, and Obviously, 1.8 is sort of a controlling verse of that, but as well as you walk through the book, you have these very clear seams in which Luke is telling us what's happening, the first of which in Luke 7 talks about the word spreading all throughout Jerusalem. In 12.24, it says the word increased and multiplied. In 13.49, it says it spread throughout that whole region. In 19.10 and 19.20, it talks about the word spreading and multiplying. Because the advance of the gospel is the advance of God's word. And the work of advancing the gospel is the proclamation of God's word. You may go, why are you so hyped up about this? Because I would suggest, friends, if I might humbly and graciously say it, uh, that is not actually the most dominant view on our day. Uh, I think it's a, actually a false quote of uh, Francis of Assisi, but there's a line that gets perpetuated often, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. 
which no one can track down in any of his writings or any of his students' writings. So it's like, you know, you just it's easy. pick a quote and then pick some name from history and say it's theirs, right? Uh, but even if he did say it, it's just absolute hogwash. You can't preach the gospel without words. It's, it's absolutely essential to it. And again, I, stick with me here, but I mean, I saw a video recently which, which you know, just, it captures it, right? There's, it was a, a, a video of, of a medical situation in which they were trying to meet and alleviate genuine human need. And so that's, my point is not to say anything about that. It's to actually address what was said. The person on the video said, so the gospel is being preached to them, and they're seeing the gospel, and they're feeling the gospel. Which sounds great. All right, but just think for me, if a minute, what is the gospel? Right, the gospel is a message about what God does for sinners through his son. I mean, at least one way in which we could summarize is 1 Corinthians 15, right? The gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day. The gospel is always about Jesus. If your gospel does not include the person and work of Jesus, it's not the biblical gospel. And me... Helping a sick person is not the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. Them receiving medical treatment is not them feeling the gospel. It's them seeing Christian love. It's them feeling the expression of Christian love. But it is not actually the gospel. We are not the gospel. What we do is not the gospel. The gospel is a message about Jesus Christ and his power to save sinners because of who he is and what he did. We don't preach ourselves, Paul says, but Christ Jesus is Lord. Paul says about his own ministry that he does not water down or adulterate the word of God. We do commend ourselves to every man's conscience but he says, by renouncing hidden things of darkness. And then two verses later, three verses later says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. And we are, in my mind, in serious danger of losing the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very mission that Jesus gave us because we're making it about us. We're making it about things that we do because we do some humanitarian aid or we show some legitimate, genuine Christian compassion and all of a sudden we're saying that we're doing the gospel. And that's not doing the gospel. The gospel is a message about God sending his son to die on behalf of sinners and rising from the dead and calling to all and saying, you have a penalty you can't pay. Only the son can pay it. And you need a righteousness that you don't have. Only the son has that. Trust in him so that he who knew no sin can become your sin and so that you can have the righteousness of Christ. And we're saved not on the basis of works of righteousness, but his mercy. And so, folks, we've got to return, I think, to the, to the centrality of the fact that the thing, the thing that we have that nobody else has, Unbelievers build hospitals. Unbelievers dig wells. Unbelievers fight against human trafficking. The thing we have that only we have is the message of how a person can be made right with God 
on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the thing that distinguishes us from everybody else. And in fact, that is the one thing, the only thing, which is the power of God unto salvation. And so we must not ever be ashamed of it. We must never lose our confidence in it. We must be unyielding, committed to the foolishness of the cross because it is the power of God and the salvation. It is the way in which God actually humbles those who are proud and lifts up those who have trusted in Christ. It's the gospel and the gospel alone that saves sinners, that calls people out of darkness into light, that turns them from worshiping false gods to become a worshiper of the true and living God. It's the only thing that actually has the power to work inside of somebody and cause the light to shine in darkness. It's the only thing that can actually take a person who's dead in trespasses and sins and give them life. It's the only thing that will actually accomplish the mission that Jesus has given to us. And yet, you and I have a pernicious and pervasive tendency to exalt material needs and and issues to places of prominence. And, And in so doing at times, become imbalanced in what we're doing for the work of Jesus Christ. That we think that we can, in fact, improve on the strategy that he's given to us, and and it doesn't produce long-term, genuine fruit. And we just need to be humbled to the fact that the very thing that people might despise is actually the thing that God uses. We, we will be popular in this day of volunteerism and concern about human issues if we begin to raise the banner for that and tout that we're going to this place and this place and we're tackling this problem in this culture and this issue. We, we can actually build big crowds. But what we might end up proving is untrustworthy to the mission of Jesus Christ. And again, I, I'm, I'm hopefully not saying these things in ways that are offensive. But let me contrast the late 1800s with a movement of God to propel people to the nations called the Student Volunteer Movement. Which, which rallied under a banner of... Fulfilling the Great Commission in this generation. Let's go to the nations and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and it was seen as a dynamic move of the Spirit of God to propel a generation of missionaries. And let me suggest how far we've come. That in the early 2000s, the most often highlighted and exalted and lifted up movement among students in our day that fills stadiums to challenge them to take on the mission of God that about four or five years ago, you know what the rally cry was? We can stomp out human trafficking in our generation. You see the difference? And guys who write missions books, well-known evangelicals show up and they preach and they say, God's doing a great move and he's motivating people to go fulfill the mission of God. And you know what the target is? We're going to stomp out human trafficking. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Human trafficking is an abomination and any Christian ought to want to see it stopped. 
The question is, the question is, when we think of ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ and what Jesus commissioned us to do in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 24 and Acts 1, do you think Jesus, do you think Jesus would agree with this or this? I think the text of Scripture, if we're going to let it control us, doesn't make that hard answer. I mean, imagine, imagine if you were leaving your home for six to nine months because you wanted to hit a massive, a massive remodel project. So you had to move out of your home, and you decide to take it as a time to tour the country, you know, get in your RV and drive around the country. You left very, I mean, all the blueprints done, all the instructions done, Everything. You're going to come back to your house, move in, and it's just what you want. Walls painted, everything. You've got it all laid out. You go do your trip. You come back nine months later. You walk in, and the kitchen that was supposed to be over here with a half wall is now fully open. And uh, the beautiful color that you thought was going to be in the living room over here, the walls are a completely different color. And, and you walk to this other part, and, and, and it's done differently. And you, you go to the person, you say, what happened? And they say, well, you know, as we got into it, we just sort of thought you'd like it better the way we were doing. We really thought, we really just sort of got this burden for this, and we thought this would be a great idea, and so we decided to do it this way. And, and we really, you know, we were sort of thinking about it, and we saw, like, with the sunlight coming in, we thought the color in that room would actually look better. And so they redid the house in ways that had nothing to do with what you said was completely according to the judgments that they had and their sentiments about it. You think you'd be happy? Do you think you'd say, well done, good and faithful servant? I don't think you would. And yet, it seems to me that the sort of de facto definition of missions in our day is leave your home, go somewhere else, and do something for Jesus. Doesn't really matter what it is, as long as you're doing it for Jesus. Because really, Jesus will be happy with anything you do for him. And friends, I think we've got to repent about that. Because Jesus told us what he wants us to do. He didn't leave it to our imagination. He didn't leave it to our creativity. He didn't leave it to our better judgment. The Lord of all, who knows exactly what dead sinners need to be brought to life and how to live their lives reflecting the light of the gospel, said, here's what you're to do. Go. Do that. And we need to take him seriously. If we love him, and if we know one day when we give an account of ourselves, we want that account to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We can do it. And the history of God's people is, is that when people have just faithfully done this, God does amazing things that cause everybody to step back and go, look what God did. Look what God did. Because I don't know about you, I don't want at the end of my life to people write stories about what I did. Have people tell people what a creative, imaginative, entrepreneurial pastor he was. And you could, if you do what Dave Dorn did and follow his strategies, you can have a great church too. That would be the last thing a servant wants to hear. A servant wants the master to be glorified. And we want to see Jesus glorified. 
as he calls out people from the nations through the simple, clear, spirit-empowered proclamation that he's Lord. Trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us to think about this and, and to do so uh, even, even in the spirit of the first session this morning, not with any kind of desire to be arrogant or, uh, uh, or look down our noses at anybody or pass judgment on your servants, but more for the sake of our own convictions and obedience and faithfulness, uh, the stewardship of our resources, because those are limited. Our time and our resources are limited, and so they should go to the things that you've told us to do. So help us to be faithful, wise, committed to the power of the gospel, desiring to call people to follow Jesus Christ through trusting in him as the only Savior that you have provided for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.